Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static, and uh, Mark and I are joined today by our colleague, Janine Eunice, who is fresh from arguing uh, a case in the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati. And Janine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me again. All right. So remind our listeners uh, of of what the Norris case is, Norris versus Michigan State University. That's right. And um, what happened? (laughs) Michigan State University came down with a vaccine mandate in July of last year, so it's 2021, requiring all employees and students to be vaccinated against COVID-19 unless they obtain a religious or medical exemption. So our clients are three people, uh, employees with natural immunity who did not want to get the vaccine. And um, natural immunity mean they already had COVID. They had COVID, they had antibodies, yeah. And uh, so uh, we brought this case... um, in in Michigan, that's right, and um, in Grand Rapids. Yep. Or, uh, well, actually, uh, Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. But... <laughs> that's right. We fly into Grand Rapids, right? Yeah. So it's it's out in Kalamazoo, and we were before the district court. What happened below? The well, court? the district court uh, dismissed two of the three claims that we made. Uh, one, one is called unconstitutional conditions. The other was about the EUA nature of the vaccines um, at the time that they were mandated. Slow down. What's sorry, an, emergency what's use emergency use authorization. So they hadn't been fully approved by the FDA, and there's a federal statute that prohibits mandating vaccines. Um, that are only, or sorry, any medication that's only EUA approved. So uh, the judge dismissed those two claims, but held a hearing on the third uh, claim, or it was really the first claim, I should say, our main claim, which was that the um, mandate violated our client's constitutional rights to bodily autonomy, uh, to um, decline medical treatment and uh, informed consent. And those are sort of uh, substantive due process rights that are recognized they were long recognized at common law and are now considered to be part of due process, substantive due process in the 14th Amendment. Um, so the judge held a hearing but decided in the end that we had not shown that their constitutional rights had been violated. I can go more into the I, Well, <laughs> the, the, the question was, um, you know, what standard did he use? And he said he used the Jacobson case. That's right. And it, what happened there? So the so J, the Jacobson case has been the main um, barrier to those of us who are trying to uh, litigate against COVID vaccine mandates. It was a case from 1905 in which the um, plaintiff had refused to get a smallpox vaccine that had been mandated um, in his town in Massachusetts. And it had been mandated because the Massachusetts legislature had passed a statute saying that um, the boards of health in various municipalities can mandate vaccines if it's necessary for the public health or deemed to be necessary for the public health. And I always point out, uh, one of the things about Jacobson is the smallpox vaccine is a sterilizing vaccine. Yes. So the way it differs from the COVID vaccines that we have now is it stops transmission to other people. Right. So the state or whoever it is, in, in that case, not only did the legislature pass a law signed by the governor, 
But the other thing was it was a sterilizing vaccine meant that if you didn't get it, you could pass on the disease to other people. Right. And, and that's, yeah, that's a crucial difference that a lot of people have been uh, neglecting to talk about when they say, well, we've, oh, you know, we mandate vaccines, Jacobson, and we mandate uh, vaccines for school children. Well, the premise of those vaccine mandates is broader public health. I think most people in the, this country, and I would argue sort of a constitutional right to not, you know, be forced to take medical treatment that is only considered to be a benefit to you. That's a personal choice. And so that's sort of gotten lost in this debate. And I, and I think it's, uh, it is important to bring it up, which is why I just did. But, um, but uh, that, he didn't buy that. No. And, and uh, he, so the judge didn't buy that. And he, he thought there was no constitutional right to refuse um, vaccines or any, really any treatment from what right. he said, which, which really goes, it flies in the face of some Supreme Court cases. And, and yeah. the old, I mean, if I want to come and just, uh, the, the one I think we always use, uh, if, if the state wants you to get a tattoo, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. that, and, and they, and they use a needle on you. It's just like they're using a needle on a vaccine. Can they do that? And it, there really is no stopping point no. In, in that. So we, we filed an appeal and That's the right. appeal is in North Norris versus versus Stanley, technically, versus Stanley. but Stanley's the president of MSU or was before he was forced to resign. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, it went up to the Sixth Circuit. That's it. Sat in Cincinnati. Who were who were the judges there? The judges were Kethledge, Bush, and White. All right. And um, you went out there to argue how to go. What happened? It was well. It was uh, a lively argument. <laughs> um, the uh, so they asked a fair number of questions. They were very. I would say. They told me I was asking quite a bit to uh, ask them to sort of reinterpret Jacobson and hold that Jacobson doesn't apply to all vaccine mandates or this vaccine mandate or requires a higher level of evaluating constitutional claims than what's known as rational basis. This is sort of a complicated legal. Uh, and, and, and and that is when I was when I was in law school, rational basis review meant you were going to lose. All right. If you're a plaintiff. And the law was was evaluated on rational basis grounds. You were going to lose. And then uh, later on, uh, in, in primarily the same-sex marriage cases and somewhere else, people started to fail rational basis tests. Now, some people think that's result-oriented, but we what we call that is rational basis with teeth. Um, and the other standard review was intermediate review, right? right? And then yeah. there's strict scrutiny. Now, strict scrutiny, the government's going to lose, okay? <laughs> Depending on which standard review you check, um, you can pretty much tell who's going to win, except for intermediate review, because it's so. I, I will be I will be blunt here. It's so loosey goosey. You can come out any way you want on her intermediate review. Yeah. But um, but they felt they felt that uh, they want to keep Jacobson as it is. Yes, they they uh, they said I was making a big ask and made it uh, implied it was too big of an ask, <laughs> but they did. Um, at first, they were relatively hostile towards my argument that it didn't even meet rational basis, uh, or that at least the, the judge had conducted a factual inquiry that didn't warrant dismissal at the motions to dismiss stage. This should have been, um, you know, been before a jury. Discovery should have been allowed to find out what MSU's rationale was for developing this vaccine mandate. Um, but I think I might have changed their minds a little bit. They became much more receptive towards the end. Uh, so we'll we'll see. What did did the Chinese vaccines come up at yes, all? Yes, yeah, I talked about the Chinese vaccines. And, and, and the yeah. issue there is for our listeners is that um, the 
Michigan State's policy allowed you to get one of these foreign vaccines, which are are uh, you know in in tests that they're they're barely a placebo. <laughs> they're just not very effective, and that's why China actually wanted. I used to say the Chinese vaccine. China hasn't stopped any kind of COVID. Uh, uh, they, they, they're still having these problems right. uh, because that's the vaccine they have. Um, well, and then the other issue, you know, that we really pushed is the MSU sort of in their directive, they even conceded that this was really about individual health. They said, you know, the vaccines don't stop transmission. And so we really pushed the fact that rational basis public health measures have to be ones that affect people more broadly. You can't be you can't be mandating public health measures that only affect the individual. Because then they could tell you to lose weight. Right. Exactly. Um, so uh, what questions did they ask the government? Um, oh. Uh, they, I mean, they did, uh, they did push that, you know, natural immunity. They, they'd got into the science quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, she was talking about the studies. They, they did, uh, ask about the fact that this didn't appear to affect third parties or have a broader public health benefit. And the CDC has, has now said things about natural immunity, right? That's right. Yeah. And the other point I think was important was the judge in the lower court had said that because the CDC recommended that natural immune people get the vaccine, um, he couldn't find that that was irrational, but we made the point that it doesn't follow from the CDC making a recommendation that a mandate is rational. Uh, that's a, a different concept. And I think well, explain to, that. Well, I mean, the CDC also recommends that you um, don't eat your meat, <laughs> what, that you eat, eat your meat well done. But I think we'd think it was irrational if MSU was firing employees for uh, eating meat medium rare right. <laughs> or having more than one drink a day, which is what the CDC recommends. So uh, there's just a difference between, you know, a, 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 right. yeah. they, the CDC mandate was saying that this is what we think people should get. It wasn't, we think people should be fired for not getting exactly. that, right? The CDC didn't say that, but the uh, Michigan state used this as a, uh, uh, maybe even a fig leaf uh, and said, look, CDC says so, so it's rational basis. Yes. But there's too many steps there uh, that they don't cover. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you, know, you were the last argument of the day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it, you, I, I assume you had rebuttal. Yeah, um, and I couldn't get everything in that I wanted to because there that's so the many nature points. of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, lot, uh, yeah, one of the things that came up was the this uh, Ninth Circuit case that had been decided last week and was very similar factually. Carity. Ca- yeah, Cariati. Cariati. Um, yeah. Me. The. Uh, so that came up. I actually didn't get a chance to respond to that. I I really focused on the CDC and the fact that that doesn't that doesn't justify a mandate. Um, oh, coming in, and um, and I I guess the other the other question on Jacobson is what was their view? Their view was was rational basis because the, yes. the the thing is is that Jacobson it's from 1905 yeah. and and so it was before we had the tiers of review and all. doesn't fit in well i tried to explain why that was wrong but uh judge kethledge was like you want us to you know depart from the precedent of all the circuits and uh even you know some of the supreme court justices have stated that it's rational basis all right well Although only in concurrences only in concurrences <laughs> exactly and um i guess they'll they'll get it one of these days um but it it has been 
Um, it's a different it's a different vaccine. It was a different MSU. There was no statute. In it. Right. And so in any event, we will see what the outcome is and we'll let you know when the case comes out. Thank you for me. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and we have held Janine over to talk about another very recent development in the case of Missouri versus Biden. And the listener might be reminded this is the case that was brought by the states of Missouri and Louisiana uh, trying to stop the government from using all of its powers to um, force the social media companies to take off stories and information that the government didn't want on social media. And we, Janine and I um, joined that suit on behalf of our clients who had been thrown off Twitter and Facebook. And so we're in the, in the case with the states um, on behalf of our clients. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, so um, I've already reported on this, but um, the Fifth Circuit, which um, is the appellate court for the Western District of Louisiana, Federal District Court of the Western District of Louisiana, um, had a mandamus. The government asked the Fifth Circuit in extraordinary circumstances to stop certain depositions of what they called apex uh, employees of the federal government, meaning guys who are so close to the president that they can't be deposed without all kinds of troubles. And um, they didn't, the, the Fifth Circuit didn't tell Judge Dougherty not to do it, but they asked really three questions. The first was, hey, they say they want to make a motion to dismiss. Why are you allowing discovery before you have a motion to dismiss? Because after all, if the suit's going to be dismissed, why should anyone be deposed? And so please tell us that. Then they took three of these apex um, people um, who were uh, uh, Flaherty, Rob Flaherty, who is director of digital strategy at the White House, and then Jen Easterly, who's the CISA director within the Department of Homeland Security, and Vivek Murth Murphy, who's the Surgeon General of the United States. And the Fifth Circuit said, well, is this the best, is there no one else who can answer these questions? And is there only way a deposition? Can they do it in writing? Now, there's a little bit of uh, annoyance, I think, on our side, because we know that the government uh, objected to written questions to all these people below. And that wasn't mentioned before the Fifth Circuit. They didn't even have that. So, um, and the, uh, but uh, Judge Dougherty has now come out with his order and he's found all the things that, uh, that uh, needed to be found. And uh, he, he's very clear, this is non-dispositive. They just wanted more information from me. And, um, and he's ordered more discovery but a little right. bit different. So for Rob Flaherty, well, tell us who Rob Flaherty is. He's the, I, I forgot exactly what his title is. Direct, Director of Digital Strategy for the White House. Yeah. What does he do? Um, well, he he seems to have had a lot of communications with media, uh, social media companies. He's on a lot of emails um, and telling them, you know, what to censor and that sort of thing. 
Um, so he's one of the people we were very interested in finding out more about his involvement in that. And then who's Andrew? Because the government wanted us to depose a guy named Andrew Slavitt instead right, of him. Yeah. And he he was a COVID, I forgot again his title, COVID task force something. Um, and he had really gone on podcasts and bragged about how he had been <laughs> telling social media companies what to do. He no longer works at the White House. but um, And he was actually directly involved in getting Alex Berenson, who I think we've talked about before, kicked off Twitter. He had had uh, communications with Twitter and told them that, uh, you know, they'd better kick him off or else because he was saying things about the vaccines that were not government approved. Wow. And so um, it says the federal defendants oppose written discovery of, of Flaherty. However, this court has already found exceptional circumstances. So he's not going to go back on his right. own judgment. He says, look, there's exceptional circumstances. But I did not, as the Fifth Circuit uh, pointed out, consider lesser, uh, less burdensome ways of getting it. And also, we had only asked for the written. We, we agreed that, OK, we, we'll start with the written stuff. They didn't want to do the written stuff at the beginning. So um, so we actually got what we asked for in terms of clarity. Right. And so he says, um, after considering the argument of plaintiffs and federal defendants, this court finds that there's no suitable alternative for flarity. However, because written discovery would be less intrusive than a deposition, you get written discovery. Yeah. And he asked us to provide uh, a discovery in five days from this. So. Uh, and I believe he could be deposed if the discovery. You oh, know, I, his last <laughs> sentence of this is very uh, strong. Should the written discovery answers be vague, evasive, or non-responsive, plaintiffs will be allowed to resubmit a request for Flaherty's oral deposition. And I think that he knows how written discovery is usually responded to uh, by everybody, not just the government. Uh, it, it, it is almost, uh, it's almost like pulling teeth uh, to get written res responses that say anything. Um, and depositions yeah. are always taken. But so uh, we'll, we'll see what the government does about that. Who's Jenny Easterly is the CISA director with yeah. the Department of Homeland Security. So what's right. the story there? Well, she had, uh, again, she has uh, text exchanges and, and emails where it's clear that she's behind a lot of the social media censorship uh, from DHS. And DHS's social media censorship was very expansive. So it included things like COVID, which the D DHS deemed it a national security threat to question whether masks work. That's actually in emails that's listed on <laughs> national security threats. So she has text exchanges with a guy named um, Matt. But it's not a national security threat to trade a WNBA player for a <laughs> Russian arms dealer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's... <laughs> So she had text exchanges with, with a guy named Matt Masterson, who was at CISA and now works at Microsoft. It's unclear when the text occurred, which one he was working at. But she said something, uh, I forgot exactly what her text was, but his response was, it's true, we've got to get tech overcome tech companies' hesitation to work with the government, you know, which is very strong evidence, again, that the tech companies were being coerced rather than doing this of their own volition. So she was an interesting... Uh, yeah. And so they but they didn't want they didn't want Easterly. They said if they are not able to pose Easterly because this the, the government. Uh, uh, he, he notes that uh, he had he earlier let us uh, take that deposition. And um, so in lieu of taking hers, we asked for Brian Scully the chief of CIS's misdis malinformation team, which I really like that misdis malinformation. Um, and so uh, they, they say the government said a guy named Jeffrey Hale, CIS's associate director of election security, should be the guy we depose. Um, you sure that's not Miss Dismal? <laughs> um, and so uh, 
So he he actually found for us and said we could take Scully. Yeah. And which, Scully actually came up last week in the Elvis Chan deposition that we talked about. Um, his name was mentioned as somebody who appears to have been involved in the uh, uh, covering up the Hunter Biden laptop story, or rather getting the social media companies to censor that. No relation to John Scully, the former head of Apple. <laughs> Scully is the most suitable alternative for Easterly based on both federal defendants and plaintiff's arguments. So I, I guess... Um, that uh, we will be taking uh, Scully's deposition. And I know Missouri has already asked the government for yeah. dates for all that. But then uh, Vivek Murphy, the Surgeon General, uh, he, the, the court said, no, you don't get him. Yeah, unfortunately. And, yeah. Um, and I, I found it, um, I, I think that, um, that it was a little surprising to me um, Me too. And I think that was the wrong uh, decision, actually, because, I mean, Murthy is on the record making these threats to tech companies. And, and, and we, he sent the letters. Exactly. I mean, we have our, we so should get to know letters. more about what he, you know, any, what he was telling them, what kind of pressure was exerted, what he was telling people under him. Um, but we do get to depose someone under him who His may have some chief of staff, yeah. Eric Waldo. So we'll yeah. find out where Waldo is. Yeah. <laughs> So. Well, chiefs of staff never can speak for what their boss was doing. Yeah, that's that sounds a little self-serving. Plaintiffs further ver. So, um, but then the big one was that we we get Jen Psaki, uh, the former right. White House press secretary. So, so she, and it really seems as we already talked about the attempt to quash that deposition here in in. Um, Eastern District of Virginia, um, but here it really it really seems like uh, she had her own attorney fighting this, and, and then the government was fighting this. But it does seem the government kind of threw her under the bus because they said we have no idea what she knows, so there is no alternative, right? Yeah. If you're if you're suing the government and you're asking what a government employee knows, and they say, oh, we have no idea, we have no way of getting it, and they give the judge no options. Well, of course, he's going to do what he did. And so um, says, although they had an opportunity to do so, federal defendants have provided no reasonable alternative to Saki. And in previously written discovery responses, they have disavowed any knowledge of Saki's information because Saki no longer works for the White House. Due to federal defendants' failure to provide suitable alternatives to the court, the court concludes there are no alternatives to deposing anyone but Saki. So um, well, they weren't exactly going to encourage you to uh, <laughs> to uh, depose cringe Jean Pierre. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> Although <clears throat> I think that she could reasonably say she doesn't know anything. Um, I mean, Jean Pierre, but um, about anything. Was <laughs> <laughs> um, and Saki's testimony is crucial for plaintiffs to identify federal officials who did what Saki publicly stated they did. And what was that? flag telling the uh, companies what kind of posts to take down, even uh, specific individuals. Um, the disinformation dozen was named. Uh, I think she named them. Might have been Murthy, though. And then they were taken off. Uh, Sounds like a name a comms person would come yeah, up with. Disinformation right? dozen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, so the final, so Saki's going to be taken, I think it's scheduled for December 22nd. He mm -hmm. extended the, the discovery deadline to January 13th so we could get some things done. But the last thing, which I found very interesting, I, I think he was a little annoyed with the government is, so the Fifth Circuit had asked, why are you doing all this with no motion to dismiss? And what, he, what he's very clear about is, what motion to dismiss? They filed a motion to dismiss in July, and then they withdrew it. Well, what am I supposed to be ruling on? 
And, and in fact, they only filed the motion to dismiss after the Fifth Circuit had mentioned it, right? Yeah. So he says, look, we've been in discovery for a while here. You've just filed this thing. They have time to respond to it, but we're not going to stop all the depositions for that reason. Maybe if you'd done, made the motion dismissed immediately and kept it up, we could have done that. But also, I've already ruled that there, that there is um, that on standing issues, which is your main motion to dismiss, which is kind of signaling, I don't think you boys are going to win this one, right? So yeah. um, I thought that was interesting. I do yeah. think that they over. I don't understand why they didn't move to dismiss. That's where we are. So Janine, thank you. Thank you.